Hello and welcome to the Bristol to Beijing podcast. I'm Luke Grenfell Shaw, and I'm cycling from Bristol to Beijing on my tandem, Chris. I left Bristol in January 2020, and it's fair to say it hasn't been straightforward so far. As I continue my expedition, I want to share the journey with you. Each episode, I'll be sharing my thoughts and experiences from the past week on the road, and occasionally, I'll also be chatting with someone who can shed some light on the country I'm in as I try and understand the world a little better. So, without further ado, what's happened this past week? And to help us answer this question, we're going to pass the microphone back over to Kate. She enjoyed it so much last week that she wanted to carry on grilling me. All right. Last week we heard about your trip from Istanbul through to Ankara, and a bit about your maybe not so favourable initial impressions of Ankara. What have you been up to over the past week? You started in Ankara. Where have you ended up? I'm now in Cappadocia, and、uh, some of the listeners with keen memories might remember I had some food poisoning at the back end of last week. And rather than enjoy my convalescence in Ankara, which it's not the prettiest city, there aren't lots of green open spaces. I actually had a very interesting conversation where I was saying, "Oh, you know, there just doesn't seem to be that many nice places in Ankara." And they're like, "What are you talking about? There are loads of parks." And I was like, "Are there? Where, where are the parks?" And then we were sort of walking along, and there was this sort of patch of trees about you know twenty meters by twenty meters, and they're like, "Look, you know, there's a park. You can have a picnic there." And、I was like, oh,、uh, it's not a park you can really go for a run in, though. Well, exactly. That's my definition of a park. But it was very interesting to find out that their definition was a place you could have a picnic. Anecdotally, it's very interesting. It's sort of picnicable or runnable.、Um, and I'm go for the latter definition of what a park is. Parks aside, I wanted to find a place that's a bit more open and healing the soul as well as the body, which is obviously. Bit of a cliche, but went to Cappadocia and met a couple of good friends there who I first met in Istanbul.、Okay. A guy called Adam Oliver and his wife Rima, and they very kindly said, "Well, we're having a holiday. Do do come and join us." And I jumped at the chance to recuperate in Cappadocia. So I guess that's a massive benefit there of the fact that you spent so many weeks in Istanbul. It's sort of making those contacts that you're then able to meet up with people later on. Absolutely, it was really lovely. One of the things with traveling is that you meet people maybe once, maybe twice. Often you think,、oh, it would just be so nice to make it three or four times. And actually, when that opportunity does come along, it's fantastic to turn something which is like a nice conversation into a friendship. I imagine that by the end of this trip, you're going to have a very full address book with new friends and people you've met along the way. I hope so. Yeah, it's part of the fun. So Cappadocia, I don't know very much about it. I will confess that right now. What I do know is a lot of photos I've seen on Instagram of hot air balloons floating above rocky landscapes and very like posed, perfect pictures. That is all I know. Tell us a bit more about Cappadocia then. Right. Yeah. So Cappadocia has sort of shot to fame really over the past thirty years, and it's become a tourist destination for Europeans. But more recently, people from China, from Russia, from Ukraine, and hot air balloons. One of the big attractions. Quad biking. That's another. Horse riding. That's another. But what's been really interesting to see is actually that well, I haven't seen any hot air balloons, and、oh, uh, yes, yeah, I think it's a bit down to the weather, but actually it's very, very quiet. So basically, because of of COVID, we've more or less got the place to ourselves. Very few number of tourists.、Mm. But for me, what I love about Cappadocia is the nature and immersing myself in it. 
And it's the rocks that ripple like a galaxy chocolate bar and have so many different colors to them. You go sort of red to yellow to green and to walk through valley bottoms. And then there are these dark hole openings on the side and you can scramble up the side of the valley and inside is an old church and there are frescoes on the wall. It's a place of sort of discovery and unexpected surprises and like an open playground where you can kind of go in any direction. So for me, that's the really exciting thing about being here in Cappadocia. That's amazing. Did you cycle down there? Ah, yeah, no. Um... (laughs) (laughs) So much for Bristol to Beijing on a tandem. Yeah, yeah, Chris. Chris has stayed in Ankara. In my defence, the first few days I've been here in Cappadocia, I have just been taking it very easy, recovering after the food poisoning, which is why Chris stayed in Ankara and I'll be rejoining Chris. So I've taken a bus, very transparent about that. This has been about doing some walking and done a bit more running the last few days as well, which has been I think it's just such a beautiful way to see places because it uses your whole body. You feel great doing it. And you can also cover a lot more distance than when walking. So for me, it's the the perfect way of exploring a place, I suppose. I have to say, a lot of people would think you're traveling, firstly, not an inconsiderable distance, 30,000 kilometers from Bristol to Beijing over quite a long period of time. And then when you have some time off the bike, you choose to go for a run. A lot of people, that might seem a little odd (laughs) but is that normal for you (laughs) i think this whole endeavor probably seems odd to to some people (laughs) that is true (laughs) um yeah you know it's something that i i love doing and you know i'm not doing really hard sessions i'm running at a pace that feels really easy and comfortable and for me it's almost more like a form of meditation like my mind can just go wandering so i'm not working really hard you know, work very hard on my fitness over a decade or more, I suppose, to be able to run. So yeah, it's it's not really... More meditation and, and exploration. Yeah, at the same time. And I guess you're able to see places that way that you wouldn't see if you were on the bike or if you were travelling by other modes of transport. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the trying to get Chris down some of these valley sides would have been a recipe for absolute catastrophe <laughs> and lots of broken <laughs> spokes and bones probably. So yeah, this yeah, is definitely something to be done on foot. <laughs> what would you say that your best bit of the last week's been? And what would you say possibly the worst bit's been? So I think the best thing of this past week has been getting to know Adam and Rima a bit better and their dog, Chloe. We are going to be hearing from later. Yeah, we are going to be hearing from Adam later. And it's just very nice to sort of spend time in a a relaxed way with, with different people where you can switch off, have discussions. You know, we talked about everything from how to try and bring about change in an organization as Adam did in you know his previous school and his current school to authors poets R.S. Thomas this is something I learned courtesy of Adam R.S. Thomas wrote a beautiful poem about a patch of light on a field and I was trying to sort of describe this sunset that I saw on the coach journey down to Cappadocia and he was like you should just uh, check out this poem so R.S. Thomas can you remember the name of the poem for us yeah, it's um, The Bright Field by R.S. Thomas. Okay, I'll have to look that up and I will put that poem in the show notes. So the best thing was spending time relaxing. What was your worst thing about the week? 
really difficult question actually i mean the food poisoning was definitely one of the worst things okay okay here's here's the worst thing just come up to me it's it's a funny story really so i was very very fortunate the day after i arrived in ankara to uh, be able to meet the british ambassador to turkey a guy called dominic chilcott and we arranged to meet at 11 30 and so i set off at 11 o'clock on chris the tandem to head up to the the embassy now half an hour should have been plenty of time it was only about six kilometers yeah, you're not that slow i am generally not that slow even when i'm down and ill with food poisoning uh, but what i absolutely had no idea about was that Ankara is basically built on a hill and the outskirts are at the top of the hill and where I was was somewhere at the bottom and so what was in theory probably like a 15 or 20 minute ride turned into this extravaganza hacking up this incredibly steep hill probably climbed about 300 meters in altitude in the space of this six kilometers going so slowly and I just like watched the minutes tick by as it you know it got to sort of 20 20 past 25 past 29 past and I was like oh I'm two kilometers away I'm going to be late for the British ambassador this is not good it's not good first impressions I made a terrible first impression on Dominic but he was very lovely very charming and, and very warm so either he forgave me or he hid his displeasure very well which I suppose is what ambassadors do on a regular basis so um who knows but <laughs> that was perhaps indeed so that was probably the most um uncomfortable part of this last week <laughs> oh dear so you need to make sure you leave enough time to make sure you get places early rather than yeah that's that's a great idea by the skin of your teeth well, no, it wasn't by the skin of my teeth. I was, I was stone dead late. <laughs> Dominic, sorry if you're listening to this. I do apologise. It will be on time in future. Absolutely. Yeah. So if anyone's got any questions for Luke next week, um, where are you going to be next week, Luke, when we speak to you? Do you know? I'm hoping to get back to Ankara and then set off from Ankara. And I'm not really too sure what I'm going to be doing. There's a hilly route if I head east or there's going to be a slightly less hilly route if I head sort of northeast and hit the coast of the Black Sea. So I'm trying to sort of toss up those two options right now. Whenever I get back on Chris, I'm reminded of just how bloody heavy the bike is and mm-hmm. hills don't seem to be very attractive. So. A tandem is not a light road bike. You're definitely not making it this easy for yourself. But if anyone's got any questions for us when I next speak to Luke in a week's time, then do send them in and I can ask them. So now we're going to hear the conversation that I had with Adam Oliver, really about an environmentalism in Turkey and what he hopes to achieve through leading Robert College, which is the sort of premier school. So it was a fascinating conversation and I'm really excited to share it with everyone. I hope you will enjoy so Adam, I'm really excited today to be chatting. Probably we'll end up talking about a couple of different things, but you're the headmaster of Robert College and most people in the UK won't have heard of this, but I think it's fair to say it's something like the Eton of Turkey. It's very, very prestigious, but it's not done on a financial basis. That's one big difference, isn't it? That students come from all backgrounds and it's kind of integrated into the state system. But one thing I'm really fascinated to talk about with you today is, I guess, the environmental side to Turkey. And you work with incredibly bright students, and I'm very interested in what values you try and instill and impart from your position of leadership as headmaster of Robert College. Thank you, Luke. Uh, yes, it's my great honour and privilege to, to have that fortunate role. And 
as you mentioned, Robert College is a school that's a not-for-profit with a strong social mission. Uh, it's always been intended that Robert College provides a template for the nation and aims to provide the very best education for the students um, within its walls, who are selected from the top 0.01 to 0.3% nationally in, in an exam, where the cohort is typically 1.2 million students. Okay. So <laughs> you yeah. can understand they're a group of very clever people. Mm. And I use the word education in its broadest and its best sense. In other words, not limited to academics alone, but very much about the growth of them as people. Central to my notion of what an education is at this point in time is connection. Now, I think all of us in the modern world inevitably have a pretty much a requirement for connection to technology. We're using it ourselves at this point. It's the medium of much of our life. But that kind of connection is a tool rather than being something profound in its own right. Mm. And the three types of connection that I try very much to create at Robert College are connection to oneself, mm-hmm. connection to others, and connection to nature. I think really if we're going to thrive in life, We need to have some element of self-knowledge. We need to understand who we are as people so that we can really understand our deep motivations and needs, what we can and can't achieve, what we can give and what we need to take at times. I think connection to others is crucial because at our most difficult times, the network of friends and family who are closest to us is one of our greatest resources to help us deal with the challenges of life, as well as being one of the simple joys to celebrate with uh, happier moments. And the third connection I mentioned is connection to nature, because that's the one that's most broken in so many ways and most in needs of restoring. For example, 75% of my students come from the city of Istanbul, for listeners not aware of the fact that Turkey's 80 or so million people, perhaps 18 million live in Istanbul. And most of the other students are coming from cities as well. There are very, very few people now coming from villages. And if I ask my students technical questions on a range of subjects, they'll have an impressive English vocabulary to describe them. But ask many of them what a particular type of tree is or a plant, and the basic botanical knowledge mm the flora and fauna that their grandparents would have immediately known. That language is gone. And in the UK as well, I would have thought. I certainly struggle to know my trees and my plants. That's correct. And and that's why I think people like Robert McFarlane are doing such good work in trying to recover for us the lost words, Mm. the lost lexicon that is ingrained in us. And I like the idea of it being ingrained, part Mm. of the woodwork of us. Yes. Because it's been our habitat for Mm. hundreds of thousands Mm. of years. And I can't help thinking that much of the damage that we're doing to the environment is because that particular aspect of connection Mm. has been severed. And that, I suppose, was my securitist way of coming back to your question about environmentalism. Yeah, I'm quite interested to sort of take this idea of connection a bit further and you're mentioning about sort of technology being a tool that helps us connect with other people, but arguably you could you know say there are ways that it helps us connect with nature but i guess i've got some two questions here one how do you see technology helping and hindering these connections to self to others to nature but then also very much if you see it being a bit different in the turkish context this technology and interaction with it and how it helps or hinders connection 
by not including technological connection as one of my trinity, let's mm. say, I don't mean to unnecessarily denigrate it, because technology, like many other tools that humans have created, is fantastically powerful and mm. useful, and it's more really about what we choose to do with it. Mm. Now, on my phone, I've got a great app called Seek, which if I point it at a plant or an animal, it will identify it for me. Wow. Okay. That technology is still developing because an awful lot of plants end up being identified as grass of some kind. Oh, right. Um, Daisy. <laughs> exactly but um, nevertheless, it's helped me identify many of the beautiful plants on Robert College's campus, the, the, the urban forest that we're lucky enough to occupy. So technology can actively help the, the right kinds of connections in some ways. I think the dangers come when it becomes a surrogate for actually living, mm-hmm. a voyeuristic second-hand experience of nature. And you can, you can blame TV as much as computing technology for that. Mm-hmm. Or when it becomes, again, a, a surrogate for and a poor substitute for real meaningful connection with others, mm-hmm. a shared day out walking or going to a beach is not the same as a Zoom call. It can't be. And also as a, a false proxy for really understanding ourselves, you know, looking at your health data, <laughs> it's not the same as doing some movement yourself. And do you see that the students of Robert College, in that how they interact, do you see students or people, you know, from you know, wider Turkish society in Istanbul relying on thinking that a Zoom call is the same as chatting with friends and going for this walk on the beach. Do you see that increasingly? Or, you know, you've spent, you know, your whole career in education. How have you seen this change over over time? Has it changed? It's definitely changed um, simply because it's, it's new, isn't it? It's my own studenthood was free of the World Wide Web and mobile phones. Mm. And, and so communication has become so much more available increasing exponentially in quantity but sadly probably staying at the same level in terms of quality maybe even going backwards a little bit the students of Robert College being very clever people are very aware that when they use technology too much they've struck a deal with the devil mm. and they kind of quite like some of the results you know it's fun isn't it the, the internet um, AI all of these developments are also put together by very, very clever people who know to, how to make addictive Absolutely. So I guess our students are probably more informed users, mm. but they're still users. And it's interesting, isn't it? There are only two <laughs> industries globally that describe their clientele as users, <laughs> the drug trade <laughs> and the <laughs> IT software trade. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it, it's true that both are very addictive technologies and, well, one happens to be through nature and cocaine leaves, you know, coca leaves happening to provide a drug, but then social media has been designed to hack our brains and hack those reward systems. And it's no accident that it's so addictive, which makes it very difficult to use judiciously and in helpful amounts, I suppose. Exactly, Anyway, you also asked me about nature and the environment in Turkey. Yeah. Before I answer that, if I may, I'll cheekily turn it around a bit. Go on. Because you love it. <laughs> you've covered thousands of awesome kilometres already, and an unfortunate experience of cycling, as we both know, is you often see the roadside debris mm. of civilization. But you've also perhaps seen some other types of 
pollution and, and, and damage to the environment. I wonder what has been most striking for you on your, your rides so far. Yeah, of course, you've done your own long-distance cycle rides in the past across Europe, in fact, to Istanbul and, and across America. And, yeah, I was reflecting on this and I was thinking, yes, on the roadside here in Turkey and in Ukraine and in Romania and many other countries, you see plastic bottles, you see plastic bags. There's all sorts of plastic junk and litter around the place. But what I realised struck me most is how how used to it I'd become, how much I ceased to notice how it, I barely, I was like thinking, well, I probably have seen quite a lot of litter on the side of the road in Turkey, but actually I've sort of almost switched off to it. And I think it's probably fair to say if you cycle through somewhere like Germany, you don't see lots of rubbish everywhere, but actually probably across my ride, and I'm guessing it will continue. And from my experience in being in Kyrgyzstan, although through its size and low population density, there isn't that much litter. But where there is people, yeah, there, there is litter there as well. That seems to be one of the things that just, you almost turn yourself off. You, you don't look at it anymore. You <laughs> look beyond it and filter out without even realising. And that was quite a scary realisation, actually. Acclimatisation. Mm. We just accept it. And that explains those scenes that we all see. I see them regularly in Turkey. You go to a beach and people are happily spreading their blankets down around piles of plastic bottles, mm. you know, dead newspapers, all sorts of junk, because they've become acclimatised to it, and that's, that's just the norm, unfortunately. Yeah. But that's what we've got to fight against. And again, those three types of connection, I think, if we can really successfully make them in the education mm. we're trying to craft at Robert College, will help people to actually have a bit of good passion and anger mm-hmm. about that kind of stuff, to take some steps as the change makers of the future to stop that being accepted as the norm. And to what extent do students come with that desire to improve the environment and their surroundings already? And to what extent is that something you feel that you need to instill? It wouldn't happen otherwise. That's a really, really key question. And one I have to be conscious of as as a head because it can't really be about me dropping down on everyone else what my vision is but isn't theirs just because it's my own little idiosyncrasy or bugbear. Mm. But we're talking about a matter so important that it kind of transcends personal wishes and limitations. We've been talking about issues such as plastic pollution and that's very menacing and deeply irritating. But there are far, far more important aspects of the current attitude we have to nature which we really need to focus mm. on. Of course, climate change massive global topsoil loss, massive global reduction in water quality and water availability. Those are the key issues, which, I mean, we often talk about saving the planet, don't we? But the planet will just readjust and find its own homeostasis in a few thousand years without us. What we're really trying to do is save ourselves. I, I love that as a the way that you sort of flip that attitude around. It's not about saving the planet. The planet will go on. It's actually about saving us and that very much ties in with my own sort of attitude of we should be self-interested in an enlightened manner that we're helping ourselves ultimately exactly that and some motivation um, so one of the mottos i've brought to the school and i've only been there two years so my plans are still developing but is an education that doesn't cost the planet and i mean that in various senses on a sort of simple level it's things like recycling all our own waste, buying our commodities from sustainable sources and so on. 
on uh, other levels, it's about trying to shift the focus of education. And if we look back in time at educational systems, education has been very much about fulfilling the needs of a society's labour force. Sometimes it's it's also been about more altruistic things such as you know education for its own sake, uh, education to create creativity. I can't help but think as as I sort of hit my fifties and look back on my life as an individual and as a teacher mm. that we've got ourselves into the pickle we're in because of failures of education. Now, as a younger person, I was very keen to blame some sort of faceless consortium of loggers, bankers. Right, market forces, the dollar underpinning it. Exactly. This interesting, now you see it as education. Yeah, well, you see, most of those people had an education. They went to school. Mm. Um, You don't get to be a top banker or oil company executive, etc., unless you've had a pretty decent education. So what went wrong? Mm. From that question, we have to ask ourselves that it, it was... The focus of the education, wasn't it? In which the world around us was seen pretty subjectively as a resource to be consumed. And we need to now create a generation that flip that and shift from a consumption to a creation mindset and preservation mindset. You framed education before about you training people to be part of the workforce. To what extent do you actually now see the role of education not so much about training people for a job, but training people, to put it in an extreme sense, to save the planet, or training people to live with awareness? That's the right question. And the answer is it's a combination of both. Because I do not expect to, would not want to create a generation of students from Robert College who are going to go off and man Rainbow Warrior and and fight for nature in that sense alone. Um, That is great, and a few people no doubt are strongly passionate Mm. and will be active protesters. In fact, we've just graduated a great girl called Selim Goren, whose Turkey's equivalent of Greta Thunberg. Oh, wow. um, The leader of Fridays for the Future in, in Turkey. What's she doing now? Just left to go on, well, to go on at the moment via Zoom to study at Yale and will be a leading voice in environmentalism mm. for the future. And, and to sort of weave back to where we were, yeah. how, how are we creating such opportunities in the school for our students? Well, I've created some new job titles. Schools traditionally have heads of academic departments mm. and, and heads with sort of welfare responsibilities. Mm. But we've created a head of environmental education and a head of social entrepreneurship innovation and creativity Mm -hmm. and the responsibilities of those people are to be the champions of these vital areas social entrepreneurship is the way forward linking sustainable business ideas that are innovative creative based around a creation rather than consumption mentality Mm -hmm. are where real value i think lie for the future Mm -hmm. and where we can actively achieve things the majority of students graduating will, as human beings do, have a range of diverse interests, mm. but will be aware and informed about their core challenges and take decisions accordingly. Our students, something that popped into my head, you know, back when I was a student, not so long ago, doing the composting, you know, that those like projects and the environmental projects wasn't exactly seen as cool, like at least in my school, you know, Bristol Grammar School great times sport in my mind that was that was the cool thing 
has that changed in Robert College? You know, or not is at all. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, human nature is human nature, and mm. teenage years are about finding out who we are. They're about our positions in the social mm. hierarchy. Mm. They're about interesting, successful or failed experiments with the other gender. You know, all of those growing up experiences. Oh, shudder. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's true in most schools in most countries, isn't it? And the the thought comparatively of digging around in some composted mulch is not particularly motivating, is it? So part of the challenge, I think, is to find ways that are interesting and are vibrant and engaging. So we've got the social entrepreneurship students Mm -hmm. working on something called SDG 13 at the moment, which is a project where they've picked 13 of the 17 UN sustainable goals that Mm -hmm. we can directly work on ourselves. In teams, they're competing for an annual prize that we've created to come up with the best social entrepreneurship project that we can action Mm -hmm. and that we as a school will fund. Wow. Those kind of projects, I think, are really, really engaging and interesting. Mm. We're resourcing it well. We're getting a range of external speakers in Mm. um, from groups such as the Show for Changemakers, from WWF Turkey, Mm -hmm. um, to connect with those students. And I think that that really engages them. And you mentioned sport. And I think the challenge is not to say to people, no, you can't do this Mm. because it's bad. The challenge is to say, hey, do this, because it's better for the planet and it's much more fun and engaging. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the ideas that we were about to launch before COVID came along was uh, a beach cleanup. Now, on its own, a beach cleanup sounds a bit worthy and a little bit maybe dull. Yes, Um, not quite the same as surfboarding. (laughs) But there were a few tweaks to the idea. Now, it had some strong environmental components. We were going to bring back all of the plastic bottles we could find, fill them with compost from our own site, plant them with seeds from our own site, and create a forest out of the the sort of bottles we were bringing back, which we felt was a nice inversion of trash to to foliage. Trash to trees. Trash to trees. Nice. There you go. That's for free. Thank you. (laughs) But to make it a more fun experience we were going to organise a barbecue and a set of games. And I think if you can get a group of kids along who are ambivalent, let's say, about the environment, Mm. rather than the ones who are already converted, Mm. and show them that you can go with a group of friends to a beach, have a couple of hours of really good fun playing Mm. some sport, have a bit of barbecue, enjoy the weather, Mm. and then before you go, you give half an hour or an hour of your time Mm maybe, you know, one quarter of the total time you're there, to do a tidy up. Win, 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 isn't it? Because not only have you cleared the beach, you feel a little better for yourself, that you haven't used your leisure time purely selfishly, that you've done something for the general good. And, of course, those people who are around, not part of your group, see that activity. They see the active combination of, of fun and social responsibility and hopefully that sends a bit of a message yeah, to them as well. There would be ripples coming out. And that leads me on to my final question on this topic in that you said at the beginning you know, Robert College is a template for the other schools in Turkey. It tries and I think is the, the leading light. You're also incredibly well funded and resourced. Uh, you have 
almost a wealth of riches in some sense. You're leading the way with these environmental issues. What can other schools and students take away from what you're trying to do across Turkey? And it's all very well at being one school, but how do you get societal change or a generational change? How do you see what you do feeding into that across Turkey? And a great question. And we are fortunate to be well resourced. But the kind of activity that I've just described to you, what does it require? It requires access to a couple of minibuses and some adult time for supervision. You know, these are not major projects requiring thousands of dollars of resources. They're a model that could be easily scaled up. I mean, imagine, for example, if a school like ours sets that model and we work already with several local schools and partnerships. So then we roll it out to them. And by the time you've got five or six schools doing it, it's interesting enough and scaled up enough to go to the local municipality and say, well, look at this, how's this working? And once you start getting support at the kind of level of a municipality or an administrative district, mm. you can start spreading the message further. So that, I think, is entirely possible for all sorts of schools. And basic steps, such as adopting an eco-code, making a commitment to do things in certain ways in a school, are perfectly manageable. In fact, Turkey's government is starting to require now that all public offices are zero waste. That's a big change for a society where we see the number of single-use plastics here with your juice, your burek, all comes in plastic. Very much so, very much so. And then I think that it's, it's entirely possible for schools on slim budgets to do something that we want to start growing in the next few years, which is getting our students out into nature much more. Turkey has an incredible biodiversity. Go to the Kachkar Mountains, and the lands around a single village will have more species of butterfly than in the entire United Kingdom. <laughs> and unfortunately, that nature is being eroded. It is being quarried, mined turned into hotels, motorways going up across vast swathes of it. But whilst it's still there, schools should be getting their kids out into it to explore it and reconnect with it because mm. meaningful connection to nature comes from spending time in nature, as you all know from your journey, waking up dawn after dawn in your tent, going to sleep, watching the stars, mm. following the natural rhythms of the day puts you back inside the natural cycle of things and makes you appreciate them and value them. And what we appreciate and we value, we tend to look after. Mm. Yeah, well said, well said, I think. Absolutely, as you spend more time in nature, you realise how beautiful it is. And it does take a while, I think, for the the charms of nature over the charms of a comfy sofa and a TV. It takes a while to recognise I think one has has deeper value. Before we wrap up this conversation, and maybe to extend this topic of nature and your your love of it, where is your favourite place to be in nature here in Turkey? Yeah, great question. And I'm happy to say that there could be multiple answers. Mm. Even in the short time and COVID-limited time we've been here, we've found a lot. Mm. Exploring down the Aegean coast, there are a wealth of fantastic ruined cities. There are more potential archaeological sites in Turkey than Greece and Italy combined, which is <laughs> astonishing, isn't it? It's not what you'd expect, um, is it? Indeed. And, and moving here myself from Italy, um, I wondered if we could find as many beautiful places to explore, but happily we can. 
Also the ancient cities in an area called Pisidia, such as Sagalassos and Temesos, which were built by their founders at very high altitudes. Incredible ruined cities at 1,500-1,600 metres up mm. in the mountains with stunning panoramic views. They're really, really incredible places, both for the ruins and their evocative sites and the mountains around them. Mm. And I guess also Cappadocia, where we're, where we're speaking from today. Yeah. I mean, we've been exploring, haven't we, the, the valleys here, the colours of the stone, the shapes of the stone. Yeah, it's an incredible wonderful. landscape, isn't it? Wonderful. It's hard not to appreciate nature in a place like this. You know, if you're in a city and you're in a park and you're searching around for the, the beauty and a few trees, it's not quite the same, but when it's here, it slaps you in the face. Adam, I'm also quite interested. What's your favourite Turkish food? <laughs> well, Turkish food thrives on variety. So again, it's hard to, to nail it down. Mm. Bullock fish is cooked fantastically anywhere where you're near the sea. Mm. And Turkish medicine mixed appetisers are a thing of wonder. And final question. Oh, What's your favourite food on the journey so far? Oh, favourite food on the journey so far. Oh, goodness. Well, it was obviously uh, going to dinner at your place at Robert (laughs) College and the beautiful food that Rumi, your wife, cooked up. Uh, I'm always a sucker for falafel and hummus. Correct, um, (laughs) I want to get invited back. (laughs) Adam, it's been a real pleasure chatting. Thanks so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Really enjoyed that. And good luck for the rest of the journey. (laughs) I think what you're doing is astonishing. And I'm going to... Just add the last word that the talks you gave to our students were really inspiring and really, really positive messages for them to hear about dealing with adversity and turning it into incredible positives. So thank you for that. Thank you. And that was this week's episode of the Bristol to Beijing podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed it and thanks so much for listening. We put a lot of time into the podcast, so please do support us by subscribing, reviewing, and rating. And please send in your questions that you have about any aspect of life on the road to Bristol to Beijing on social media. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.